Somebody want to open us in prayer? I'll pray. You game, Rick? Thank sure. you, Father. Uh, we just thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, you've had much to say about who we are. Um, and Lord, without you, we would be lost. So we just thank you. We rejoice in that. You had a plan to redeem us, and um, we're just thankful for that. Lord, I pray that as we read um, about Christ walking the earth and the deeds he did leading up to the cross, I pray that we're enamored even more, more devoted, more in love. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you teach us through your Holy Spirit uh, what you have for us today to see you as our prize and our eyes fixed and on you. In his name, amen. Amen. Thank you. I had this thought as I was uh, falling asleep last night that um, no matter how much time I spend reading this book, it, it doesn't ever get boring, which I think is kind of fascinating. And I'm, I'm not trying to like boast here, but truly, I think probably I've read through the Bible probably something like 20 times in my life between all the classes I had to take and you know the years that I've spent reading it. That's probably not an exaggeration. And I'm going through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology right now for like the fifth time because I take people through that book when I'm doing some discipleship stuff, and I'm a little bored of it. <laughs> but I don't have that same experience with, with God's Word. Um, you know, certainly there are seasons in my life where I have to be a little bit more disciplined to be in it because the familiarity kind of takes over. But I've never had a moment where I'm like, I have to teach God's Word tomorrow. I'm, that bores me. So, anyway, glad you guys are here. I hope that it remains interesting and intriguing to you as well. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 2, in verse 13. Um, because I don't think we quite got through this scene in totality. We got through quite a bit of it, but not all of it. So, um, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by... Speaking of Jesus, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, well, last week we talked about how the Pharisees themselves, ironically, are sinners. Um, you know, here they are sitting, why does, saying, why does Jesus eat with these people? But if they were to clear the table and the Pharisees were to sit, Jesus would still be eating with sinners, right? Um, but it says in verse 15 that there were many who followed him. I think grammatically the way that that phrase links to the prior phrase. So the ESV says, and as Jesus reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I think the implication is not that there's just many Pharisees and many regular folk, if you will, but also many people who fit this category of tax collectors and sinners. Lots of these types of people were drawn to Jesus. Does that surprise anybody? So, so you don't think it's, it's saying that it was primarily tax collectors, and, and of course everybody's sinners, but I mean primarily tax collectors and who they consider sinners that follow. I think what it's saying is, 
to the reader, Jesus had massive crowds that followed him. And included among those, among that crowd, are this category of tax collectors and sinners, kind of the worst of the worst, the way we would see it today. Maybe the, the drug addicts and the prostitutes, right? Is the homeless and the, I don't know, the gangbangers. Um, but that doesn't surprise anybody? Why not? Well, it's surprising that they would that they would be well tax collectors maybe you know sinners. I mean maybe the tax collectors didn't consider themselves to be that bad. I don't know, but but why would somebody actively involved in sin be interested in following? Right. So isn't that interesting? Why would somebody who's kind of like actively participating in sin be interested in following? Gabe, I see Monica coming. Would you be willing to maybe throw one or two? Actually, there's a couple couple people with her. Um, yeah, I find that kind of interesting. So this is an important sort of principle, is that there is no precondition to following Jesus. There's no precondition to coming to this man. Um, and I can't think of a single, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of a single instance where Jesus told somebody to go away. Now, he said many things that caused people to go away. You know, he said the kinds of things where it's like, well, you're going to have to choose between this or that, right? Go bury your father or follow me. Um, but you can't do both. So he did say those kinds of things. But I can't think of a single instance apart from, you know, get behind me, Satan, where Jesus told somebody to go away. Can anybody think of an instance? Okay, but let's not stop there because this is moving in a direction. There are lots of instances where Jesus put a decisive choice in front of the people who came to him. Okay, so if we look ahead a little bit, look at chapter 3, verse 21. These are just a few examples. There's this moment, 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Then, uh, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Right? This is sort of a, a moment where Jesus is even going to force his family to decide what kind of man he is. Then look at verse 35, that same chapter. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right? Not everyone who comes to me, but everyone who does the will of God. Then chapter 4, verse 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus was consistently teaching these kinds of concepts that were driving people away. And we actually looked at this, I think it was last week, when we turned to John chapter 6, where he talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. So there are these consistent moments in the life and teaching of Jesus where even though all kinds of people are following him, even people from this category of sinner and tax collector, he does eventually bring them to a choice, a decision that they have to make that's going to send them either away from him or to his feet as servants. I think another way we could say this is many people were attracted to Jesus, but not very many people stuck around for the long haul. Um, and I think the, the place where you see that most glaringly is the moment of the cross. Who's left? Mary. 
pretty much nobody, right? There's a scene with Mary and John. You know, a couple of the disciples are kind of skulking around, kind of hiding. But there's nobody in that moment who's like, I'm with that guy, right? Because they would know the consequences, right? It would be to be crucified probably next to him for being part of his, his uprising, if you will. So this goes back to this prior point that we were talking about last week, is that Jesus is inclusive, but he's also exclusive. And I think we make an error when we deny probably the second half of that phrase. We live in a culture where like our highest values culturally are things like tolerance. Did anybody see that statement? It was a couple years ago now where this there was some issue in a school, and so the principal wrote this letter about how intolerance will not be tolerated at their school. <laughs> and like that was seriously the language that they used, right? So tolerance is, uh, is a value, inclusivity. Um, you can even determine the theological perspective of a church if you end up on their website, and their website says, we are an inclusive church. What do they mean by that? They mean that they mean that you can come to this church and participate in everything the church has to offer, even if you are living a perpetual life of unrepentant sin. That's what they mean. So many were invited to follow Jesus. Many were even permitted to follow Jesus, but not many of them would ultimately stick around. Um, Matthew chapter 10, if you want to turn there real quick, I think that this is a helpful passage. Picking up in verse 32. Will someone read Matthew 10, verses 32 through 39? Nice and loud so that the people listening on the recording can follow along. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I come to send peace into the earth with the sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that will find his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's pretty intense. Jesus said he came to bring a sword, right? I mean, I think culturally we think of Jesus as this hippie dude with long hair who kind of was like a beach bum. But there's passages like this where he's like, I came to bring a sword, and I'm going to divide even a mother from her child. I'm going to divide a son from his father. I'm going to divide brothers because you're either for Christ or you are against Christ. Um, so I think it's important that we acknowledge both of these realities about Jesus is that there's no precondition to come to him. But once you come to him, he's going to give you these intense ultimatums that are choices that you have to make between allegiance to Christ or allegiance to something else. So he's welcoming in nature, but his teaching is quite offensive, actually. And the armor of God is the truth, the sword, sword of truth. Yeah. yeah. And then I think about in Revelation 2 when he comes back, the sword is coming out of his mouth. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, what Kim was saying is that in um, the, the armor that we're talk, talked about, that's talked about in Ephesians, is um, the sword of truth. Is it? Let, let's oh. double check. Well, it might be the belt of truth. Let's look. Sword of spirit. Is the sword of the spirit of God. In other places. There's a sword. Okay. I think, though, the, the point remains is that truth is a divisive thing. Um, it's actually not this cultural thing that we call it, where it's kind of like this buffet, free-for-all, kind of take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever you want, turn it into some casserole that makes you happy. It is a divisive thing. Well, um, Jesus is the truth. Yeah, and Jesus is the truth, right. And, and I love that you pointed to Revelation 19, where in the end, he's got all these armies behind him, but what slays the enemies? It's um, it's just, yeah, the sword that comes out of his mouth, right? It, is it the belt of truth? Is that what you saw? Oh, sword of the Spirit. Sword of the Spirit, belt of the truth. Okay. Well, in any case, Jesus said that the Spirit will lead you in truth. So these are not compartmentalized things. They're woven together. Okay. Um, so does this behavior by Jesus, if you want to go back to Mark chapter 2, does this behavior by Jesus eating with sinners mean that Jesus endorsed their sin? No. Hmm. Why not? Yeah, because God hates sin. I think it's because what we were just talking about. Eventually Jesus is going to bring everybody to this ultimatum. What do you love more, the things of God or the sin? Yeah, and I think they're drawn to this guy because the Pharisees would say, have nothing to do with those people. And Jesus is saying, no, I welcome those people. But he's going to ultimately, again, lead them to this ultimatum. So application for us is when some, it's fine when people aren't claiming Christ. But once they do, there's, there's a different kind of dynamic, right? I mean, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. That wasn't wasn't in my notes, but that that is super important, right? Um, Paul is very clear on this, 1 Corinthians 5, that we actually don't judge outsiders because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the Word of God. They've made no profession of faith. They have given no indication that they intend to do what God commands, right? So we don't judge them. We leave them to the judgment of God. Yeah. So just to play the devil's advocate, by guilt by association, though, so if you're running with a group of guys that commit a crime, right, you may not be the one that physically does the crime, but because you're with that group of people that are doing it, guilt by association, right? So they, they are guilting him because he's associating with these people. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I think the religious leaders think that if this is truly a holy man of God, then he'll have nothing to do with these right. people, these kind of people. That what they don't understand is that uh, our sin actually cannot corrupt God. Right. God's holiness can transform us. It it only goes one way. It doesn't go the other. Yeah. But among but among men, sin is corrupting. Right. Because yeah, the Pharisees only were looking at the out, at the outward appearance. Uh, yeah, God does look at the heart, but I think the indication that these people are sinners and tax collectors is a statement about their current spiritual condition. And some might have stayed that way. And some might have stayed that way, right. But that's the point is, 
Jesus does not require you to meet some standard in order to come to him. But then, as kind of Rick was saying, once you come to him and you say, this is my master, this is my Lord, this is my savior, then you are, you are claiming that his way of life is the way of life that you want to walk, that you want to live, right? And so, yeah, a lot of times in churches, it's like we tolerate all kinds of sin from Christians while we judge outsiders. And that should actually be in the inverse. We should not tolerate the sin from believers while we are very gracious towards those who are far from Christ. Okay, but this idea of Jesus as the preacher of tolerance and acceptance is pretty widely taught. So I've got, you, I've got an example for you from Facebook. I had this ready to go last week, so this was like a week and a half ago. I just happened to be scrolling through Facebook, and, um, and there was a guy I know who at least at one point professed to be Christ. Now he calls himself professed to be Christ? Sorry, he, he professed to believe in Christ. Sorry. No, no. Sorry. Professed faith in Christ. Now he calls himself the heretical healer. And everything that he says is basically just twisted scripture. So he's not like abandoned Christ, at least in his own mind, but he repudiates conservative Christianity. Biblical, let's call it biblical Christianity. So he posted this. He said, Pride parades are a living example of Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet, throwing a party and inviting the bystanders while the religious folks stand by thinking we're too good to show up. Hashtag Pride Month, parentheses, or, yeah, parentheses, religious homophobia. So what he is saying is that, you know, if we were to take this scene from Mark 2 and put it in modern day terms, Jesus would be hanging out at the Pride Parade. Um, what do you guys think of that? Well, he might go to the Pride Parade. I mean, he might be around the Pride Parade, but I don't know that he would be. There's a difference. You know, he might pass by the Pride Parade. He might be hanging out. He might, he would be, well, he might even, he might even hang out with some of them. Not hang out with them, but um, have them hang out with him. More to suppose. But, I know there's a difference in being in the presence of something and, and um, being acceptance, acceptance of Yeah. I think that we might find Jesus hanging out in a coffee shop with somebody who attended a pride parade. But I don't think that Jesus would, himself would have attended the pride parade. And the reason is because it's one thing to be associated with people who do sin. It's another thing to be in the presence of those people while they flaunt their sin. I think that those are actually different things. Um, but uh, I think actually maybe more significantly than this is the fact that Jesus never left those people in their sin. He, there, there's no place in scripture where you can take us to where Jesus actually endorsed sin. He did affirm people who were made in his image, and he came for the purpose of a doctor, like he says here, to rehabilitate them, right? If you went to the doctor and, and you said, you know, doc, my stomach hurts, I think I have some cancerous symptoms, and your doctor was like, no, no, just go home and keep, you know, eating chips and enjoy, enjoy life, I think you would seek a second opinion, right? Jesus was not eager to leave people in the condition of sin. Um, Interestingly, this guy, the, the, the Facebook post showed that he had 90 comments. 
Um, he deleted 75 of them. <laughs> I actually commented he deleted mine. And then he said the reason we need to delete those comments is because there are suicidally vulnerable youth. And you know we need to protect them from the negative comments. Um, and, and of course, all the ones that were left were, you're so brave, you're so courageous to say these things publicly. Um, Someone else's comments on Yes, yes, you can. Help, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I, I would be of the opinion that if you really cared about suicidal youth, then you would be eager to actually offer them some hope, rather than just give them more of what is leading to their self-destruction. So, Jesus is the way of Jesus is to welcome people, in order that he might transform them. And when he gives the statements that will lead to their transformation, like you have to acknowledge me before men, you have to go and sin no more, you have to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they either accept his terms or they walk away. And once the terms are clear, you're not going to continue to hang out with Jesus because he came to bring a sword and he's going to divide. So verse 17 is pretty clear. Uh, is or, or kind of key here. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. <clears throat> but what is he calling them to? Repentance. Yeah, repentance and righteousness in following him. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts, questions, comments on any of that? I really want this to be clear because I don't, there's like so much pressure from our culture to believe this concept of Jesus as this hippie tolerant, you know, sort of <coughs> whatever goes kind of guy. And that is not the biblical picture at all. The biblical picture is he is welcoming and then he presents you with an ultimatum. And you can either accept him on his terms or not at all. There's no other way. All right, yeah, so Jesus came to call the sick so that he could heal them. You can come to Jesus as you are, but you cannot follow Jesus and remain as you were. And why would you want to? If there was something in your life that drove you to this man who is declaring that he can heal you, then why would you want to keep whatever ailment it was that drove you to this man in the first place? People love their sin. People do love their sin. But when you get to the point where you're like, actually, I think I hate this sin. I think it's, it's eating me alive then if you find the man who says, I can take that from you, why would you want to drag it into that relationship? Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think the Pharisees uh, failed to see that they too were sick. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're the most sick yeah. because they categorically place themselves in a different sphere. We're better than these other people. They are self-deceived, self-righteous. That's painful to give up what you've always said too, I think. I think it's a, a little C.S. Lewis course. He kind of alluded to that, that there's pain involved in even the best aspect of us coming to God. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes from a C.S. Lewis book is in The Great Divorce, where it's really hard to explain, but basically you have this guy who is just consumed by lust, and C.S. Lewis pictures the lust as this little lizard that lives on this guy's shoulder 
and this angel says, I can kill it for you. And the guy's like, no, 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 I don't want to kill it. Like, I just, I'll just get it under control. And pretty much the angel says, the only way to conquer it is to kill it. And the guy says, but if you kill it, then I might die too. And essentially in the scene, he, he pretty much does. But that's the point because um, this thing is only like a parasite connected to you. And it will be painful as it dies, but it will lead to life in the Doesn't end. Doesn't he eventually get to the point where, yeah, yeah, go ahead and kill it. Yeah. I, I, I'm better off dead. Yeah. That's yes. Yes, he does. Um, and in that book, he's the one person that kind of does sort of end up redeemed. I know it's the same in our, you know, in our real life. If we don't want to die in ourselves, we cannot go farther, you know, to follow Jesus because we have to die with ourselves. Yeah. To follow Christ. Absolutely. And we, we just looked at that in Matthew, right? Jesus said, um, yeah, unless you're willing to give up your life, you're going to lose it. And if you're willing to give it up, then you'll gain it. The imagery of the, the dead seed going into the ground, dying, and then growing into something. So the dead seed. Sorry, dead I thought seed, I heard yeah. dead sea, and I was like, I'm not familiar with this. But yeah, the dead seed. Or seed. Yeah. Absolutely. Unless it dies. And goes into the ground, which right. is a symbol of baptism. And right. dying to self, and, and then we can grow. It can't grow. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Fruit. <clears throat> yeah. That's good. So the work of Christ is ultimately transformational. <coughs> and if it's not transformational, then you really haven't, you really haven't met Christ. Um, because he doesn't leave people in their sin. He is a healing physician. So let's pick up in verse 18. Somebody willing to read 18 through 22? The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of untrunk clothes on an old garment, or else the new piece is pulled away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins, or else the new wine bursts the wine skins. The wine is spilled, and the wine skins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wine skins. Sometimes Jesus does some things in his teaching where he ties two things together that I'm like, I'm not sure why he's tying these things together. This is kind of one of those scenes, I think, where he's giving sort of two different illustrations here. Um, but the question is, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast when the disciples of Jesus don't fast? Someone want to take a crack at kind of answering or like summarizing Jesus' response to that? You're like, I came to the class so that you could teach it, Grady, not so that I'm um, I think what's going on here is that Jesus is kind of saying that fasting is a form of waiting on the Lord. And the Messiah has come. The Lord is revealing 
what everybody's been waiting for, at least in the Jewish tradition. So now is not the time for fasting. Now is the time for partying. Now is the time for celebrating. Um, and then if that's true, and I'm correct in that, then we are in a time of waiting. Actually, we're sort of in a weird time of celebrating and waiting. Because Christ has come, and yet, so we can party for that. I mean, we can celebrate that. And yet, he's gone again for a time with the intention to return again. And so we're waiting. Um, theologically, people have summarized this as the already but the not yet. So, there's nothing for Jesus' disciples to kind of fast and pray and wait for as long as he's with them. But, Jesus does say a time of waiting will come for them. Um, I don't know whether he's referring to the season before Pentecost. So, after Jesus rose from the dead, there was this period of time before the Holy Spirit came. And I don't know if he's referring to that period of time or if maybe he's referring to kind of the new covenant era, which is the church age, which is what we're living in. So there's no New Testament command for Christians to fast. Did you know that? But this seems to come pretty darn close. Because if you take the position that we are in a season of waiting now, and that wait and that fasting corresponds to waiting upon the Lord, then it would seem that fasting would be a practice that would benefit Christians. What do you think about that? I guess maybe I could ask this first. Who thinks that Jesus is only talking about the period between his resurrection and the waiting on the Holy Spirit? That this is particular concerning his apostles or the apostles, his disciples. I think this is like a dual, a dual prophecy, which okay. is like the bride, because in in Galilee, his Jesus here is telling about the bride and the groom. In historically, I don't know if I correct me if I'm wrong. That when in in Israel, when 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 you're about to get married. The bride really don't know. He's just waiting for for the groom, and but she's preparing. I mean, she's prepared and awaiting for for the groom. I think Jesus here is telling us that you know, um, his coming, like like in when the Bible said that there is a time when we are that the follower of Jesus will be taken away. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, and also there is like the, the Holy Spirit in, in, the, in the Pentecost day. But I think there, there, this is also like the, you know, because when that time comes that we're taken away from this earth, it's also talking about the grooms coming for his bride. Yes. And... I think maybe that's kind of like, that's what I'm trying to uh, trying to discern here is, is Jesus encouraging his disciples to wait for the coming of the Spirit? Or is he encouraging believers as we read this to wait for the coming of the Lord and his second coming? And again, maybe it is both. It is both, I think. Um, 
you know, it's recorded here for us for a reason, <coughs> probably beyond just historically to make a record of it. Um, well, it says the bridegroom is taken away from them. What is he referring to there? I, I think there he is saying that, like, I, Christ, am the bridegroom, and I will leave. Um, could I could I say something about it? In in Galilean culture, they have they have like once the the groom proposed to the bride, they have to go away to prepare for a, like a house for them to live in after after the marriage. But the the bride has no idea when when the groom is going to come back. Only the father of the groom know about it, and he will tell his son, "Okay, go get your bride." and time for celebration. So that's why Jesus is referring this so the people that his audience can understand. I'm not familiar enough with the with that historical context to to say one way or another, but certainly that's what Jesus means, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly yeah. that's what he is saying is like the that, the, 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 the day of the bridegroom's coming is something that we're still waiting for. Let me let me ask this. Well, let me just say this. In my experience as a believer, fasting has been a, a benefit to me. Um, it can be easy to not think about waiting on the Lord when life is going on as normal. And there's something about abstaining from food in particular that makes me hungry, that makes me think about Jesus a lot. Because every time I'm like, oh, I should go grab a snack from the pantry, then it's like, oh wait, no. I'm not ultimately hungry for my stomach to be filled. I'm hungry for my Lord to fill me. Does that make sense? Um, and so although fasting is not commanded in the New Testament, I do think it is a powerful form of self-control, self-discipline, directing our mind to think about Christ, not just on worldly things. Um, if you've not tried fasting before as a believer, I would encourage you to give it a try. Um, and you can, especially if you want to cast out a demon. <laughs> this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Um, that's an interesting statement as well, right? Uh, but Jesus taught man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And yet we operate as if food is more necessary than prayer, than pursuing Jesus, than God's word. Um, and... There does seem to be a connection between abstaining from food for the purpose of pursuing prayer. Does that make sense? Okay, the transition from 20 to 21 here is very jarring. That's kind of what I was mentioning as we began in this chunk. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, the disciples actually do fulfill this. Acts says that they were praying and fasting as they were in the upper room. So maybe the fulfillment is immediate in Acts. Um, I didn't write down the verse for that, but it would be you know in the early couple chapters of Acts, chapter one maybe even. Um, so what is this weird transition from 20 to 21? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. 
and so are the wineskins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. <clears throat> Anybody want to take a crack at how those things fit together? He relating this to fasting? It would seem related because he's talking about that subject and then he says this. Refreshing yourself to be ready for the new thing. I think that probably actually <coughs> Jesus is taking sort of a bigger picture approach than that. Um, I think that what he is doing is he's using this moment as kind of a teaching moment to explain that the rules that applied in the Old Covenant no longer apply in the New Covenant. Actually, he, he's, he's, t he's telling these people, look, you operate this way because of the way that you understand the relationship between God and man from the Old Testament context. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you that something new is here, and this is a decisive division. So, why, let me, let me put it in, the, in these terms. Jesus is not fasting, and he is not commanding his disciples to fast. Why is that not a violation of, like, why is that not a form of disobedience? Why is he not in religious rebellion? Yeah. He started his ministry by fasting for 40 days. True. But he's not he's not in the he's not continuing to fast. He's not yeah. commanding his followers to fast. I got you. The the John is telling his disciples in order to be holy, we should fast. The the Pharisees are saying, in order to be holy, we must fast. I see. Jesus is saying, Hey, to my followers, you don't have to fast. So why is he not guilty of leading people into disobedience? So the Jews would, the Pharisees at least would fast twice a week. If I remember correctly, it'd be like Tuesday, Thursday. Is that Bible reference or in extra biblical? <clears throat> so I think that this is just a tradition that they've developed. I, I can't think of any of the 613 yeah. Old Testament laws that say they must do this. But it's ingrained pretty deeply if John is saying, hey, why is the Messiah not doing this with us? Because Christ is a fulfillment of a promise. So he has done everything right. And if you are in him, you don't need all the other things because there is no requirement. I think it's even bigger than that. I think you're on to something, but I think it's even bigger than that. And I think it's going to go into the next couple of verses as well, verses 23 through the end of the chapter here. What's going on here is Jesus is saying, guys, get ready because the old is passing away and the new has come. And I think that's really the, the big point of uh, verses 21 and 22, okay? And this is super important. Um, these verses undergird what I would call as kind of my own perspective on how we should read and understand the Bible. And um, this might be new to you guys, or maybe this is something that is pretty similar. Um, and I mentioned this in my preaching from time to time, one of the big questions we as Christians have to wrestle through is, how does the old fit with the new? How do you, how do you reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament? 
Okay, so some people will say, well, we break the Old Testament law down into three categories. We break it down into the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And the ceremonial law is gone because the temple is gone. The civil law is gone because the, the Israelites are gone. And we just keep the moral law. That's why we need the Ten Commandments. And I would say, well, that sounds kind of philosophically reasonable, but show me in the Bible where it teaches that the law has three different pieces to it. And we are now told that we can break it down like that and ignore two parts of it and keep one part of it. Can anybody think of a passage? No, but I would come to the same conclusion by saying Jesus did away with ceremonial, all three of them, and then re-taught the moral in his teaching. So that that's the position that I would take. But like, and, and I'm not Presbyterian, so I don't want to be guilty of, of misrepresenting their position on this. But if I understand Presbyterian theology correctly, they basically say we keep the moral law. The moral law is a strain that carries from the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai all the way through into the New Covenant. In fact, I did read a great book called, oh shoot, I think it's by John Frame called Doctrines of the Christian Life or something like that, big fat book on how Christians should live, and he bases the whole thing off the Ten Commandments. But I would say that actually Jesus is saying right here that if you take a piece of unshrunk cloth and you sew it onto an old garment, you're going to tear a hole. It doesn't go together. Yeah. So what I think what he's saying here is you cannot take the Old Testament law and put it over the life of the Christian and have a functioning garment. Right? That's not going to cover you in righteousness. And he says the same thing, no one can put new or no one puts new wine into old wineskins, the new wine being the new covenant. We're not trying to stuff that in the wineskin of the old covenant. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. What's the new wine? It's the new covenant. It's life in the spirit, not life according to the law. Does that make sense? And I know a lot of people though who want to throw out the moral law because of that. They want to throw it out and say it no longer applies. Well, you've maybe heard me say this at church, and I think some faces in the crowd looked at me. You don't. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. And what I mean by that is because Jesus has given you a higher law. The Ten Commandment was, you know, don't wrong your neighbor. Well, Jesus said all of the law and the prophets is summarized in this. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you love God, you won't do anything that will offend God. You will Absolutely. keep the moral law. The ethic for loving your neighbor flows out of your love for right. God. But, but still, I have so many, I hear many people say, but the, the, if the Old Testament doesn't apply, if the Old Commands don't apply, but they do apply. Well, this is kind of what Rick was saying is like there's a clear end to the old covenant and then Jesus takes his moral teaching and says, I give you a new commandment, right? Love God, love your neighbor. But he, he doesn't he take away the old commandment. He repeats them all and in, in, you can go to every place except the Sabbath where you see him repeating the, the Ten Commandments. So in a sense, to be considered, you say the old has been passed away, it's obsolete, that's what Hebrew says. And then we're following Jesus' commands, which are to not to not lie, to not steal. To, they're all, it's, they're all it's, it's, it's even better. It goes from being a negative to being a positive. So, so not, instead of thou shalt not lie, it's let your yes be yes and your no be no. So it's not, it's not 
taking away from what went before, but it's adding to in a positive way. Um, it's it's not they're not telling you. It's very hard for me because I can't I can't I, I, I feel like I'm saying two different things. You know, love God, love your neighbor. Those are the new commandments. They are not the replacing commandments, are they? Are they let's the let's look at let's look at Matthew chapter five and let's see what Jesus says. But if you try to live under the old, you're bound to the old, and as soon as you fail, you're if done. you just live under the old, but if you add to the old the new. Love God, love your neighbor. That it makes more sense. Well, well it's not was at, always. That it's was not always the case. Love God. This is, sums up the Ten Commandments. It says that. I mean, yes. yes. The, the, the the difficulty is that there was no there was no resource by which you could do the Ten Commandments under the Old Covenant. You were commanded to do these things. They were sort of bare minimum. But you didn't have the Holy Spirit. This is the importance of Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, "I will put my Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my commands." Super important verse. So now why can we keep the law of Christ? Well, because the Spirit of God <coughs> empowers us, enables us to do that. But you could, under the Old Covenant, you could never steal your neighbor's donkey. And you could still hate your neighbor. And you were technically correct. Does that make sense? Whereas Jesus says, love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, are you ever going to steal his donkey? Right. No. So... It, it's something totally new. So it doesn't negate the the old laws. It just it, it just puts them in a new light. Well, it does negate them, and 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 the reason is twofold: because they weren't they weren't sufficiently high in the eyes of God, and also because you couldn't do them, you couldn't fulfill them. Yeah, Gabe. Yeah, so it has to be negated because if it's not, if it's not, then man's doing it himself. If right. Man's being religious. Right. If you go to Matthew uh, 19, they ask the question, "Who then can be saved?" Yeah. Right. And Jesus, Jesus said, "With with man, it's impossible." Right. But with God, everything is possible. Yeah. And so, uh, it, and that that was through uh, God's redemptive work through Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what's it's not a, it's not a replacing it's it's a what I would say whether you could do them or not because I'm not sure I agree that you can't do some of the commandments. The problem is you do, you you fail in one you're done. Yeah. I think that's what convicting you. Is. But the but my thing is Hebrew says the old is passing away it is obsolete and he's including everything in the old. Mm -hmm. um, and then Jesus said I did not come to full to um, abolish the law, which sounds like he's saying, we gotta still keep it, but he's saying, I came to fulfill it, which means it's completely done. That is yeah. all done in Christ. Right. Now he's established a new law as yeah. the law of Christ. Yeah. And, and you can read the Old Testament and say, you don't have to be Jewish to go back and know the Old Testament to be a Christian. You just have to have Jesus' teachings. Yeah. I mean, it's good to know these things right. in the Old Testament. Right. They're, they're relevant to the Christian. I wouldn't, I'm not teaching them about the Ten Commandments. And in fact, you, you are sort of creating, like in that book, you, you let me read that, you're creating a law where people can appear to be holy and law-abiders when they're not, you right. know, yeah. I, that's yeah. a separate kind, of, separate kind of thing, but. No, well, let's, let's look at that verse that you mentioned. That's where I was taking people, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. <clears throat> so I think this is worth reading, because Jesus kind of seems to uh, contradict himself here. Um. But this definitely connects with the old wine and the new new wineskin. Or new wine and old wineskin, sorry. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
So he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, so right there you're kind of like, okay, the law and the prophets still matter. All the Old Testament is still important. But then he says, I have not come to abolish them. I'm not excusing them. I'm not saying, guys, they no longer apply. He says, I came to fulfill them. So they are fulfilled in Christ. Um, all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. All of the intention of the law was to drive us to the one who could do what we could not do in our own power by our own strength. Okay? So Jesus came to fulfill them. And if they are fulfilled, I mean, think about a glass. Like, it's, it's full. Can you add anything from your attempt to keep the Ten Commandments to that? No, it's, it has been completed. It's finished. Fulfilled, another word for that would be completed. Right? And that, I mean, that's what Jesus cries out on the cross. It's finished. For truly, I say to you, 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And it will be accomplished when Jesus says it's finished. It sounds like we've got to keep the old law until heaven and earth pass away. That's not really what he's saying. He's saying heaven and earth won't pass away until I accomplish this. And he hasn't accomplished it yet, but he's about to. Right. And that's when it's going to pass away. When it pass away. Exactly. So we're not waiting for heaven and earth to pass away. Right. The Ten Commandments are and, actually and, and, and really what he's saying is as firm as creation itself is, dependent upon the nature of God who is immutable, that's how important this law is. But I, I, am, I am here. I am that God, and I will fulfill it. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 19, therefore... Wait, all yeah. that to say, though, I don't think, you know, to, for Deb's sake, like, yeah. we're not going to be, if, you know... I think we come to the same walk by doing that. So, like, I don't think Jesus is holding us to that necessarily. So I would, you know, she needs to hold on to that. <laughs> like, we should... Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. we're looking at your walk, Deb, and I don't see anything to rebuke you on if you, if you think that. You know what I mean? So, because I know a lot of a lot of people do. It's just, and I'm talking very. I think all of us are talking very adamantly, and I think. Right yeah, and I'm not trying to pick fights, and yeah. certainly I want to be careful when I say like you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. Yeah. I, I'm saying that for a little bit of shock value, in order to kind of draw out this idea, but but and I, I'm I'm glad that Rick was affirming you in that, and I want to get there too. Let me, but let's finish real quick. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So am I at risk of being called least in the kingdom of heaven because I'm telling you, hey, you don't need to worry about the Ten Commandments. No, and here's why. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, to the average everyday folk like you and I who are listening to this, they're, they're, they're probably like, these guys know all 613 commands. They keep them perfectly. They, they do this thing as well as anybody could. Whose righteousness could surpass theirs? Well, the righteousness of Christ, which is given to you by grace through faith. So the law has already been fulfilled for you in Christ, applied to you by grace, through his work, through his death, through his resurrection. So now, there's no need to keep the law. Now, you honor your Lord, who has given you his grace. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the motivation is totally different. The motivation of one is, I need to make sure I do enough to stay in his good graces. The motivation of the second one is, I need to give a life of gratitude to the one who has saved me. Does that make sense? So it's fulfilled. And then you can also think like, 
man, if I have a problem with lying, the solution is not do better, thou shalt not lie, do better. The solution is God does everything he says he does. And he is in me to produce that kind of reality out of me. And therefore, I can and will stop doing this because Christ is in me. Does that make sense? So it goes to motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and More than the actual act of What I would say is that what you do is at least as important as why you do it. We don't want to diminish the what you do. What you do is very important. But it has to be wed together with why you do it. The Pharisees, what they did, it was excellent, actually. I know we bash on them a lot, but they were, they were morally good dudes. But they had corrupt hearts. Yeah. So their motivation was bad. Does that make sense? So, but, but the reason why I think this is important is because if you, take, if you take the new wine of the new covenant and you try and squish it into the old wineskin of the Old Testament, things get really weird. Versus if you say, that is, is done, Christ is the fulfillment of it, and now we live in this new covenant. And the, the directives for that new covenant are found wholly in the teachings of Christ, the Gospels, and the commentary on those teachings in the epistles, right? That's where, all, that's where we would go to find all of that. And we would say of the things that were in the old, they're sort of just illustrations for us to understand more deeply how the new is going to operate. Does that make sense? And I think that's kind of what you were saying, Rick. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but... That seems fairly similar to what you were suggesting. Um, so maybe another way of saying this is, I mean, this really does change everything, right? It's not law, it's grace. Um, it's not our obedience, it's Christ's obedience. It's not the old covenant, it's the new covenant. It's not motivated by trying to prove yourself but out of a desire to honor the one who has given himself for your sake. And, and so I guess I would say here that Christianity is not the continuity of Judaism. We have similar roots here, right? We have a Judeo-Christian faith. But if you think of Christianity as the continuity of Judaism, then I think you've misunderstood the way that these two go together. Okay, so another way of saying this, because I'm trying to illustrate it, is this is actually not like the evolution from the first Windows computer to the latest Windows computer. Um, does anybody still use Windows computers? Do you know what your operating system is? It's still DOS. It's going away. Underneath all of that beauty, fancy... Um, <laughs> gilding on the surface, you're still operating with the very same thing that the Windows computer 25 years ago was using. It's still DOS. Okay? Um, this is more like the evolution from the bicycle to the car. Kind of similar. Still has wheels. Still moves you forward. But fundamentally different. Does that make sense? Or maybe a better way to say it is um, and I heard another guy say this recently is uh, it's like an acorn. The, the old covenant is like the acorn. All the ingredients are there. Put it in the ground, and it
and it blossoms into a beautiful tree. The tree and the acorn are definitely not the same thing, but there's continuity, even though there's a significant difference. Does that make sense? Well, like and you bike. couldn't have the tree without that acorn in the first place. Absolutely. Totally. Would you ever want to go back to the acorn, though? No. No, I want the tree. But the tree produces all kinds of acorns. What, you were I, saying, I like your bike one because it shows the bikes under your own power. You're moving the cars. That's good. Um, I didn't think of that even. Maybe another one would be like kind of mixing a cake. Uh, if you take all the ingredients, you know, you got some flour, you got some eggs, you got some oil, you got some sugar. What if you just took spoonfuls of each of those? Would you be eating cake? No, it'd be disgusting, right? Raw egg and raw flour and sugar. You wouldn't even think you were eating a cake. But you put them together, you mix them up, and the end product is this cake. It's, it's got continuity, and yet it's totally different. Does that kind of make sense? Um, but certainly what you want is the cake and not the raw ingredients. And I think that's kind of, don't go back to the old. Um, Paul talks about this a lot in Galatians. Go, go back to the old and it's not going to be good for you. Okay. Well, that was a lot. Maybe more than I intended to spend time on it. But I do think this is a question that kind of just plagues people because, you know, you're going through Leviticus and it's like, don't do this, don't do this. And you're kind of like, why don't we do this? At least I, I remember asking that question. Why don't we do this anymore? What has changed? Well, Jesus says, I fulfilled it all. And I'm giving you something new. All right, well, let's pray. God, I pray that this is not just uh, empty, academic, theological discussion that, that means nothing for us. I pray that what it would do is lead us to rest. And that's actually where you're going to go next in, in Mark, Lord, is you're going to talk about Sabbath and you're going to talk about rest. And so I pray that it would lead us to rest. Um, I pray that we would not fret about what's required in order for us to come to you, that we wouldn't worry or be anxious about that, but we would just come because we know that you accept us. But then in that acceptance, in the freedom, in the spirit, in the truth, I pray that we would live in a way that truly does honor you. Um, and so I pray that we would understand the importance of what Christ came to do for us, both in giving us a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees and also giving us a law that is infinitely greater than the law that they were seeking to keep. And I pray that we would be committed to keeping that law, the law of loving God and loving others through the Spirit of Christ in us. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. amen.